Thank you for joining me for another episode at Empower Apps. I'm your host, Leo Dion. Today, I am excited to be joined by Adam Shaw. Hey, Adam, how you doing? Good, Leo. I'm doing good. How are you? Good. Keeping the energy level up uh, this WWDC week. We're recording the last day of WWDC. Mm-hmm. Before we get started, I'll let you go ahead and introduce yourself. Okay, great. Yeah, my name is Adam. I have been an iOS developer kind of since the beginning, 2008. I started off doing kind of the indie developer thing with my own apps. That sort of transitioned eventually to contract work. But now I work full-time with a team called Bonobo Labs. We make the Moleskin Studio uh, suite of apps, uh, specifically Time Page, a calendar app, Actions, which is a to-do list app, and Flow, which is a kind of an iPad-specific uh, drawing app. Yeah, that's awesome. I've heard nothing but good things about those apps, and I, I know our audience has. So really glad to have you on to really tackle the iPad. We haven't had an iPad episode in forever. Yeah, this is going to be awesome. But first of all, what's your favorite feature from WWDC 2021? Uh, I think my favorite thing that I'm looking forward to is the uh, the async await stuff, the new features of Swift. Probably more so than any other feature I can think of in a long time, it's the one that makes me just want to immediately rewrite a ton of code and, and be sort of <laughs> eager to do it and excited to have to do it. It's, it's been a while. Since, maybe maybe back in the day when we transitioned from uh, manual reference counting to ARC might have been the last time I felt wow, uh, really? <laughs> so excited to just, uh, just uh, yeah, kind of start fresh with uh, kind of a, a new approach to asynchronous programming. Yeah, I mean, we've had, it's been a while since we've had a big change in Swift like this. I mean, with Swift UI, we had the whole, the weird way we do result builders or function builders. But before that, to me, it was like the try-catch stuff and the mm-hmm. generics. Like that, those were very early big changes to Swift that were very welcome. What's your like overall game plan with upgrading your code since like this is only going to be available at least for right now on the latest OSs? <laughs> I yeah, so I guess our game plan to a large extent is uh wait until we're able to adopt it to some degree. I was a little surprised. I think a lot of people were that uh, it wasn't going to be backwards compatible. I think maybe there was an assumption that because it was a language feature, or at least we thought it was purely a language feature, that we'd be able to use it right away. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I suppose if we were doing another feature that was already, say, iOS 15 only, and it tied in to asynchronous programming, you know, we would, you know, perhaps kind of just section that off as an iOS 15 only thing. Yeah, yeah, right. And that makes sense. I mean, that's kind of the way it goes with SwiftUI and a lot of the newer stuff anyways. Do you have any thoughts about that, about, you know, with your apps? I'm no, curious to get everyone's I thought. Like, like, is anyone, <laughs> does anyone have a secret way of dealing with this that isn't just wait a year or two until you can adopt it? I, I don't know if you've been on any of the, like, lounges on Slack, but I actually no. asked that question. Okay. And, and for me, too, it, like, my concern is with Swift packages. And, like, if you're building something that as a Swift package that'll be on server and client. And I want to be using this stuff. Like, what do I do then in that case? Ah, Yeah. Yeah. Because I want this to be distributed, but at the same time, I want to be using these features right away since there's a lot of benefit to them. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I haven't decided yet what I'm, what my game plan is. I feel like the community would probably accept a, a backwards compatible version that maybe was even more limited in what you could do. You could just take the same, the basic async await approach, even if you couldn't use maybe some of the advanced uh, 
advance things. I'm not sure. Or yeah, just it doesn't have to be the most optimal thing in the world, but at least like the language feature is there, which is what we really wanted. Yeah. So your experience is a lot with like building iPad apps. How do you convince a client that making an iPad app is worth it? Uh, that's a little bit of a challenge looking at it from that, the client perspective. Our most recent app was a app that was designed specifically to be an iPad app. It was a drawing sketching app with uh, Apple Pencil in mind. So in that sense, it was, it was a very easy decision. It was more of a transition to how do you support iPhone. But in general, you know, I think nowadays, regardless of the actual market for iPad apps, I think supporting the iPad and having a decent iPad app is just simply something that the market kind of expects just almost as a as a checklist item. Similar probably to maybe Apple Watch might be the same. Having a Mac app is starting to become more and more something that's expected. And when I say expected, I mean things that if you don't have it and you launch, you will immediately get questions. Where's the iPad app? Where's the iPad app? Where's the iPad app? <laughs> and so uh, that, if nothing else, that would be the first first thing I would start with. But then depending on the app, iPad apps can obviously in, in many cases for certain types of apps provide a much just a better a better experience. With you take advantage of the, the bigger screen, you can have more content or larger content or a, uh, a navigation flow that actually in some ways is, is simpler because it's flatter. It sounds dumb, but if, if you have a kind of a, an app that's going more for pro features, there's, there's, you can fit more buttons, more toolbars, more things to kind of expose immediately. So I'd kind of start with those things. But, but to be honest, there are some apps where it's, it is pretty obvious that the iPhone is the main use case and the iPad is more of a, a secondary nice to have, in which case you should probably still do it because I think it's expected and I think Apple likes it. But maybe you don't, uh, you know, worry about it as much. Hey, folks, I wanted to let you know about a sponsor of our show, Revenue Cat. If you're doing anything with in-app purchases or subscriptions, you'll definitely want to check them out. Using RevenueCat to power your in-app purchase infrastructure solves for edge cases that you don't even know you have. It also protects you from outages your team hasn't even seen yet, and it saves you time on future maintenance and features released by the app stores. Plus, it empowers your product and marketing teams with clean, reliable in-app purchase data so they can make better decisions to grow your app. All that is to say, Revenue Cat handles all the headaches of in-app purchases so you can get back to building your app. I highly recommend you check Revenue Cat out at revenuecat.com. Give it a try and see how it can empower your product and help it continue to grow. Thank you, Revenue Cat, for sponsoring our show. You're mentioning the difference between iPhone and iPad. Mm-hmm. How about iPad and Mac, like why would you port a Mac app over to the iPad? Maybe port's not the right word, but you know what I mean. Well, no, I actually, I do know what you mean. And that's, that's a really good question. And it's one of the things I think people don't think about when we start talking about how come there's not more professional or powerful apps on the iPad is the fact that it, if you already have an existing Mac app, it is, it is really kind of a port. Right. I mean, you, it's, it's, it's similar, probably an effort to porting your iOS app to Android or porting your Mac app, maybe to Windows, maybe not quite that much because you can, you know, you're still using Swift and perhaps and, and you can share some of it, but it is a porting effort. And you have to decide whenever you have two apps on two different platforms, 
are you going to maintain two different code bases? Are you, uh, one thing you could do is you could consider, especially if your existing Mac code base is, is very, very old and crusty perhaps. And, uh, maybe you're thinking about moving to Swift UI anyway. Maybe the iPad app is the first step towards modernizing your, your Mac code base. So the porting effort is kind of the thing that I think holds people back sometimes. But I guess this is, this might be a bit of an unpopular opinion, but I, th- I think one of the reasons why you you do see fewer powerful Mac apps on the iPad isn't really because the iPad isn't capable enough. I think it's been capable enough for a while. Uh, I don't think we really need to wait for more multitasking features or external display to support. I think the reason people haven't ported their Mac apps to the iPad is because they've decided not to. And that's probably a lot because of perhaps uh, efforts and user demand I guess there's a little bit of a chicken and egg problem, right? You don't have people demanding pro apps for the iPad because they're not currently using the iPad for pro apps because there's no pro apps for the iPad. So maybe someone has to, has to start. I think like to me, uh, one of the biggest reasons is business reasons. Like there's a strange expectation that's been set for the last 10 years that apps on the iPad along with apps on the iPhone should cost $2 and do everything for you. And I think like, that's one of the biggest problems is like Apple didn't make it easy for folks early on to build like really pro apps and charge really pro prices. So I think that's a big issue. Whereas with the Mac, you can kind of get away with doing your own thing. You're like, you're not tied to the app. Yeah. Or, yeah. I don't know. That's, that's kind of my take on it. Um, I, I agree completely. I, and, and related to that, there's also an expectation in addition to low prices now that when you pay for an app that you get all the platforms perhaps for free. So there right. might be this expectation from Mac users that when you have an iPad version of your app that they're just going to get it because they already, quote, bought your app. And that's <laughs> and that might be even less incentive to build an iPad app is thinking, well, I can't if, if I charge separate for it, maybe my existing customers won't be happy. I like the iPad. Um, I had an iPad Pro. And then I realized I wasn't going anywhere last year for a lot of good reasons. (laughs) And so it was like, why do I, I don't use this thing as much because I don't go a lot of places and I ended up selling it and buying an M1 MacBook Air. And I love the first, like I can do everything on my MacBook Air. So for me, it was like, I'd rather sell the iPad Pro and get a new MacBook Air. But like the iPad is so great at just having that like singular focus to it and using the real estate efficiently. And like you said, you got the pencil too, which is awesome. I have that too. And like the new features I added last year with Scribble. So there's like a lot with the iPad. And every time I hear people, oh, I wish they bring Mac OS to the iPad. I'm like, that's (laughs) not exactly the best way to go. We already have the Mac. Why would we bring the Mac to the iPad? It's just that that ability to focus. I don't know. What do you like so much about iPad and iPad OS? As a user, even though I have a uh, iPad Pro, I, I probably actually don't use it for very many Pro uh, features. My iPad is my, what I call my semi-portable device. You know, my Mac is more usually docked at my desk. I associate my Mac with desk work, or even if it's a even if I'm going to a co-working place to work, it's it's portable, but it's still me sitting at a desk. And I uh, associate iOS, iPhone with on the go, quickly pull it out of my pocket and look something up work. But I associate my iPad with portable within my house, mostly. It's my go-to device when I want to casually browse the web or read something or, or check Twitter where I know I'm going to be maybe sitting on my sofa, relaxing, and I want to maybe do the things that I would normally do on my iPhone, but why not enjoy the bigger screen? 
Yeah. And that makes total sense. Yeah. I had the 12.9 and I have a keyboard hooked up to it and I loved it. But yeah. I, it, what size do you have? I have the, uh, the 11 inch. Okay. The, okay. the pro from 2018, I think. So I guess the question then is, is when it comes to those different contexts and the apps that you develop, what are some of the biggest mistakes developers and designers make when they are building for the iPad? The most probably common mistake that you'd see from a maybe a very inexperienced developer is uh, come up with a design that works really nice on the iPhone, and then they, you know, it runs <laughs> on the iPad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they maybe you've used auto layouts and and size classes, so it's not like the layout's broken on the iPad. But we've probably all seen apps where it's a big UI table view, and it literally <laughs> takes up the entire screen, right? And, yeah. and that's bad because it's a bad use of space. It's also bad because it's ugly. But in the case of like the table view. It could actually be a usability problem as well. You know, you might have something in your cell where there's some uh, primary content that's you know pinned to the leading edge and some secondary content that's pinned to the uh, trailing edge of your cell. And now on the iPad, they're they they're eight inches apart, and it's it's even hard to kind of reason about how that data is connected. So I mean, that's that's kind of the I guess how to, what not to do one hundred and one. Um, <laughs> you know, so and and if you're using you know, hopefully if you're using some of Apple's standard things, the system will do things for you, like use, create, uh, present things as a, as a split view. In, right. That, that was something that would normally just be a, a straight uh, UI navigation controller. I guess I'm turning this answer now into what, what should you do? Just consider, uh, you know, other ways of navigating your app. The other thing I think is just looks always crazy. To me, no matter what, UI tab controllers always look wrong on the iPad. Even if sort of logically they kind of makes sense it just always feels like there's this giant tab bar at bottom and maybe there's four (laughs) buttons and when you when you tap them the whole screen just goes and 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 changes to to something else interesting so what do you recommend well for our own apps we for the moleskin suite of apps we do a whole lot of very very custom ui so we sort of come up with very very uh custom solutions for that. Uh, so, uh, and, and it's kind of the equivalent of maybe a split view sort of thing or a, the new sidebar feature, which I think was yeah. introduced last yeah. year, where you're, you're kind of, if, if you really have something that normally might be in a, in a tab view, you might consider just making all those options available on the sidebar with, with some other common things or, or lists of things that you might want to. Are your Moleskin apps on the iPhone as well or just the iPad? They're all on both platforms. And uh, t- Time Page and Actions were designed as iPhone apps, which we then thought about how to adapt that to the iPad, whereas Flow, which is uh, the, the drawing app, it was designed with the iPad in mind. And then we had to do kind of do the reverse, which is less usual, uh, less common, I think, is mm-hmm. to figure out how do you adapt something that's been designed for the iPad to the iPhone. And that was something that I think it was a little bit of an extra challenge because our minds are, were just not used to uh, going in that direction. Right, right. I was just, I was wondering because I'm wondering if you use the tab bar and the iPhone versions of those apps and then use your custom control on the iPad. No, every, everything in our apps are, is pretty much 100% custom. We don't even think, I don't even know if we use things like uh, UI navigation controllers very often. We're, we're doing a whole lot of just, uh, we, we do a lot of parent-child view controller things, but we're doing kind of custom presentations, custom yeah. transitions. Things That's like awesome. That. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 great, but it does mean that a lot of the things you might get for free 
from Apple for things like handling both uh, the iPhone and the iPad paradigms, you don't get for free and you can still handle it, but you have to kind of figure out, figure out what to do and actually implement it. So one of the things you mentioned was like doing, putting a big giant table view on the screen. And you also mentioned changing the whole screen when you switch tabs. What are some other things to consider when you want to use that massive screen size responsibly? I think a lot of it is, so the things I talked about before were more related to navigation. You can also think about it in terms of uh, user content, which maybe is more related to the, the table view. You have more screen size, so you can have more of the same size content, or you can have the same amount of larger content. And it probably depends on the situation. Like a photo viewer, you might want the photo to be full screen no matter what, because that's the whole point of, of taking advantage of the big screen in that sense is getting to see your beautiful photo at, at uh, higher resolution. But maybe uh, for a photo uh, thumbnail viewer, you might decide that it's better to see more of the smaller thumbnails on the screen at once so you can navigate through thousands of them rather than uh, larger thumbnails. Or maybe you split the difference. That's something that a lot of times people don't consider, I think. Uh, you know, Say you have a collection view of thumbnails and it's a flow layout. So maybe on the iPhone, it might be uh, three columns wide by some vertical scrolling, however many you have. When you first port that to iPad, you're probably going to have the same cell size. So you're just going to have more thumbnails of the same size. And then you might say, what if we do the opposite? What if we keep it three columns, but we just make the thumbnails larger? And you could do that. But right. you can also go in between. You could decide that we want slightly th larger thumbnails to take advantage of, of, of seeing them a little clearer, but we don't want to only have three wide because <laughs> that might be not a good use of space. The other thing I would say that's... Uh, uh, I work with really great designers, but I'm not a designer, but I've learned a lot from them. And one thing that I've learned a lot about is white space and margins and and things like that. And um, on the iPhone, a lot of times we have a tendency to want to to fit things onto the smaller screen as as best as we can. And so a lot of content goes edge to edge or maybe very small margins, like eight point margins, 10 point margins. Where on the iPad, you might try uh, much larger you know, margins for between things. You might try 40-point margins, 50-point margins, things that seem kind of comically crazy on the iPhone, but <laughs> might actually just look good on the iPad. And you could say, well, Adam, isn't that wasting space? And yes, but there, there is a balance because sometimes just a little bit more spacing can add more clarity to, to what right. you're trying to do. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Do you ever have to like do anything for like designing between like an iPad mini and a 12.9 inch pro, like the different sizes of the iPads, or it's pretty much easy to design. Once you've designed the iPad, it's easy for any iPad size. It's a really good question. I'd say in general, you don't have to worry about it too much, but we've definitely run into cases uh, like that with uh, with Flow. We have this uh, pen editor that can expand, and it's like it's like kind of like a floating view controller in the middle of the screen. And our our designers use nice big twelve point nine inch iPad Pros, and they had it all nice with the with the spacing. And then you look at it on the uh, iPad Mini size, and it doesn't look bad, but it just the margins look, look tighter. And I know, and I've worked with our designers long enough that I kind of know when I'm like, oh, I'm not sure about that. And so I would just, I would just say, by the way, here's what it looks like on the smaller iPads. And, you know, they'll just tweak some spacing, maybe, uh, you know, 
bring some of the spacing or margins down a little bit for that case. Yeah, yeah. So that's it's not as common, but you know, it definitely happens. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'd imagine. And then you find out right right when they deploy or, or right when you build it, and you're like, yeah, okay, th- those margins aren't going to work out so great. Yeah, yeah. Do you guys support multiple windows? We do not support multiple windows currently. Flow is actually a really good candidate for it because it is kind of a document-based app. You open your your document canvas. And when that was first announced, we were we were very excited about it. We actually did kind of do a proof of concept to kind of see how it would work. And it immediately started to lead to some questions for like, what do we want this experience to be? Do we want the full UI of the entire app and every window? Do we just want a new window to be just the drawable canvas document? And to be honest, I think we shelved the conversation for a little bit and then got distracted by other things. And strangely, actually, not many people have asked for it since. Uh, I think there was sort of uh, a few requests back when iOS 13 first came out because uh, it was on everyone's minds, support multiple windows. But it really hasn't been something that uh, has been that popular. So we're a little, I can't say I'm proud of the fact that we don't support multiple windows because I, I know I know we should, but, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, balancing priorities, it hasn't yet risen to the, to the top. Hey, folks, I wanted to let you know again about one of our favorite sponsors of the show, AppFigures. AppFigures is a leading platform for mobile app makers to track and grow their apps. It's packed with tools for reporting, optimization, and competitive intelligence. If you're making money with, for instance, subscriptions, then you know you need to stay on top of your numbers. You also know whether it's Apple or Google, they might leave you with a lot to figure out. So luckily for us, AppFigures has worked all this out. By bringing your core metrics to the forefront and calculating key data sets like MRR or churn or whatever the stats you're looking for, they can make it easy to understand what's happening and why and give you more time to grow your subscription business. If you're not sure where to get started in analyzing subscriptions, check out their guides or head to appfigures.com to start a free trial and see how much simpler it can be. If you like it, use our special code again, Empower3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. If you're looking at growing your indie app business or whether you're a big company who has an app in the app store and you need more exposure, you'll definitely want to check App Figures out. Again, give it a try. And then if you really like it, use our code Empower3030 to get 30% off for the next three months. Thank you so much, App Figures, for sponsoring our show. How about when it comes to this, like building an app for different... What did, I don't know when they introduce it, but the idea of like taking up half a screen or a third of a screen and things like that. Like uh, the, the split view kind of multitasking. Yeah. 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 Have you done anything with that? And like, what would have been some of the challenges on that front? Yes. All, all three of our apps support that. And uh, that's actually an interesting story. Flow was designed to be an iPad app and we knew we wanted to eventually support the iPhone, but maybe 20% of the way into development, we thought, let's just focus on the iPad. Let's just get that out and we'll deal with the iPad, iPhone later. But maybe two thirds of the way through development, we realized that the split view on the iPad use case was kind of important. We thought uh, people might be sketching something that they're looking at a photo of in, the other, on, in another app, or they're taking notes uh, using the Apple Pencil while using another app. And then once you decide to support split view, you can't decide to just support 
like the regular size class widths. You have to support all the widths, which include the the tall, skinny ones. And at that point, you might as well just build an iPhone, you know, uh, experience as well. And so that's what ended up happening. We did launch with both the iPad and the iPhone. One of the things we found, though, that's interesting, which a lot of people don't think about is when we think about size classes, a lot of times we do just think about the width, right? The, the, the iPhone is a, is a, doesn't have as much width as the iPad. But a couple of things, when you uh, split view on iPad, the skinniest splits in portrait mode, at least on my device, is actually like 320 points wide, which is actually skinnier than any of the currently shipping iPhone widths. So you're not just going to iPhone width, you're actually going a little smaller and you have to kind of think about that. And the other thing is just the fact that it's now this weird shaped, super tall, skinny uh, thing can just look weird no matter what. I mean, say you have a a table view that maybe typically only has 12 items on it, right? On an iPhone, maybe that takes up the whole screen. Maybe that takes up half the screen. It looks fine. On a tall, skinny split view, it might only take up like the top 10% of the screen. And then you have all this white space and there's kind of nothing you can do about that. We struggled with that a little bit, but ultimately we just decided that that that's okay. That's super tall, skinny while in portrait mode on an iPad. If a user has set up their split like that, they want your app to be that size. And, you know, kind of you get what you get. Like we don't have any split views that go horizontally aren't that common. And I think would probably lead to, uh, you know, a bit of user confusion because that would that could be the solution, right? You go, oh, well, we'll do some sort of like equivalent of UI split view controller, except it'll be a, a horizontal split instead of a vertical split. That way you can make use of this tall vertical space. <laughs> but yeah, that's that's something that we didn't even seriously consider. But those are things to think about when you support the split view is, is it isn't just, oh, we'll adapt the iPhone UI to the split view. I mean, maybe that's what you do, but the end result may look weirder than yeah. Uh, even the well, like you said, the yeah. ratios are off. Yeah, like yeah. they're considerably even even more so. Yeah, I can imagine. You talked already about like sketching with the pencil mm-hmm. and things like that. What are some considerations you've made when designing for the pencil? Have you worked with like pencil kit, or do you just do like? Yeah, I'm really curious about that front. So we have our own our own custom drawing engine. Our our app actually was released a few months before Pencil came out. Um, although in retrospect, you know, we our designers uh, designed the the look and feel of the the, the pens and pencils and, and drawing tools to be very very specific. And in retrospect, it actually can create a bit of a nicer drawing experience than probably what Pencil Kit would would give us. But don't get me wrong, if Pencil Kit existed before we had started, we we definitely might have considered it. So we use the uh, input from the Apple pencil, excuse me, directly. And, you know, you can do that when you, when you set up gesture recognizers and things, you can, you can see, you can distinguish between pencil gestures and uh, finger gestures. So is pencil kit like an abstraction layer above that then that you just didn't need to take advantage of? Right. Pencil kit is actually, yes. Pencil kit is the whole, it's like a drawing canvas engine. It's uh, the, the way you just access things from the pencil is just more using gesture, UI gesture, UI touch. It's a special kind of touch. So you guys are really getting in there and figuring out like how the pencil actually works, whereas you don't, you don't have all the niceties of that abstraction, but then you could do a lot more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And certainly if anyone who's thinking about supporting the pencil, I mean, if your app isn't literally a 
drawing app where if the focus isn't having unique drawing features, but drawing might be part of it or annotating, Pencil Kit is awesome. It's It gives you really, really high performance, very high quality uh, drawing, and it just sort of you know, works for free. And last year they added a bunch of new APIs in Pencil Kit that let you even directly access the stroke data, the drawn stroke data. Right. So you can uh, programmatically create it or you can access it and compare it to something or uh, run some analysis on it. So it has a, a lot of nice features, but we're just uh, more accessing the the pencil kind of in its raw data form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what have you found when it comes to dealing with that? And about the hardware too. I'm really curious what's going on behind the scenes. One of my, uh, the other team member who uh, worked mainly on Flow with me, uh, he wrote the drawing engine. So he'd have a lot more uh, details about that. But at a high level, you you can literally just create a a UI gesture recognizer and uh, have it just give you uh, pencil data. And if you do nothing, you can use pencil to interact with any a UI by default on on the right. uh, on the iPad, and so in some ways you could just have an app that says, "Oh, I don't I don't care if they use their finger or the pencil. We'll just use standard, you know, uh, whatever gesture recognizer or, or whatever you're using, and it will work with both." We decided that we wanted slightly different behavior for both, so we distinguish when we get calls when our gesture recognizer gets called, we look at, is this a pencil gesture or is this a finger gesture? And the reason we do things differently is we just, um, if it's a pencil, we do want to look at things like you get data about the uh, the pressure that you're putting on the pencil, the angle of the pencil, and we want to, to use that for our drawing. Also, we found that people are usually using the pencil for more precise drawing. So our default set of pen sizes is slightly different, whether using finger or, or or the Apple Pencil. And that so, yeah, little things like that. Uh, and the other thing that's, I mentioned distinguishing between pencil input and finger input is one thing it lets you do is you can use both at the same time, which is something we do in Flow. So for example, in Flow, you can have it so you are drawing with the pencil and erasing with your finger. Or if you, we have another mode where if you do a long press with your finger, it will switch the drawing mode that you're using with your pencil. So you can kind of take advantage of that and really actually do things that would be impossible otherwise without the Apple Pencil. That's awesome. Because, yeah, I mean, that's the power of the pencils being able to do more precise stuff. So I want to talk about, I guess, the two other pieces of, I don't want to call hardware support that's been more emphasized yeah. uh, by Apple, and that's the keyboard and the the pointer. We don't call it the mouse. We call <laughs> it the pointer. What have you done in those spaces, and how do you see how it's changed the way the iPad is used and developed for? In our specific apps, we haven't done much other than just make sure that our app is highly usable with those things, because by default, you can use the pointer to kind of click on anything you would normally tap on. I guess is it is it click now with the pointer? I, I forget if we're supposed to use the word tap, <laughs> yeah, exactly. tap or click or touch or interact with. And sa- same with the same with the keyboard. Do you do any keyboard shortcuts? We do a, a limited number of keyboard shortcuts. Yeah, yeah, and. Okay. Uh, I think all we do actually right now, because our apps are kind of considered a suite of apps, we have some shortcuts for quickly switching between the apps because we can still use the uh, you know URL schemes to launch each other's apps. Uh, so that's what we sort of started with. And then I think I haven't done that. I'm not the person on our team who did that work, but I think there's some 
We support kind of just, you know, the, the, the standard basic ones you would expect, like the copy paste, that kind of thing. We haven't done a lot of custom power user sort of things. It, it's something I thought about though more, uh, preparing for this interview because w- one thing that occurred to me was, you know, even if you might look at your own app, as we have, and say, ah, is our app really the type of app that people are using docked with a keyboard and, and trackpad? Right, especially if you're doing, like, with Flow, it sounds like it's a lot of sketching. and stuff Yes, like yes, too. yes. But then I started thinking, well, maybe that doesn't matter. You know, maybe you don't think of it that way. Maybe you think of it as, is my app an app that someone might use in split view side by side with another app that they that is a professional app that they do want to use with keyboard and mouse, and now... They don't want to suddenly switch between keyboard and trackpad and their finger just because they're thinking about two different apps that you want to almost be a good app citizen. So even if there's not a lot of compelling reasons for you to support it in your own app, know that your app might be used side by side with an app that the person is thinking in keyboard and trackpad mode. Right. Like the the one thing I wanted to play around with actually before we chatted was yeah. universal control and I was like super disappointed it's not in beta one yet. <laughs> oh, isn't it? Okay, yeah. Yeah. I was like, okay, I'm dragging my mouse on my Mac. Why is it not going to the iPad? And it's like, oh, it's not in there. What do you think about that in general? My my initial reaction was that's very weird and I don't know yet how I feel about it. <laughs> I'm curious to see if it's better than me using sidecar. That's okay. why I want to try it. So I use Sidecar quite a bit with my MacBook Air, and I have a mm-hmm. fifth-gen iPad, I believe, just regular iPad. So that's nice to have that extra screen, but there's things like I can't do put it in portrait mode. And there's also things that, like, I don't really need the Mac screen. I just need to pull up a browser to read something mm, and be yeah, nice yeah, and control yeah. that all with one device. So, yeah. So now the next feature you need to implement is that you support a Wacom tablet. And then that way, like you made the full circle of like hardware <laughs> compatibility. <laughs> there it's you like, go. oh, good. Now you could draw with a mouse on a Wacom tablet on an iPad, even though you probably should just use a pencil, honestly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> did you ever use any of those? I think back when they first came out and they were really, really terrible but still better than anything else but no not not any of the more recent modern ones that have actual screens you know lcd screens or anything like that we've come a long way from that (laughs) so we kind of touched on it but is there any like os feature that you feel like they need to add in order to make the ipad more pro or do you do you kind of like go back and say yeah it's kind of a business issue more than as anything else it certainly isn't hardware (laughs) <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things they they could. I mean, I think I think although there's these things we talked about that maybe I, are not necessarily prerequisites for having pro apps on the iPad. Uh, I, I do agree it's mostly business reasons. There's still some sort of nice things that you would eventually like, like having a, having a solution for external monitors that is. Uh, can be used not like the app doesn't have have to have specifically support, but kind of like uh, the idea of having like multiple screens. You know, I think about what it would take for me to want to use dock mode. Yeah, to, to for for me. Yeah, to, to, I was going to say for, that for my own work, and the answer is always well. Okay, it would. I I would need a I I would need keyboard and pointer. I would need. A, and when I'm, t- I'm talking about work mode, I'm talking about like, you know, professional software development mode. And it's like, well, I, and I would want multiple external displays and I would want 
probably on the software side, things like maybe you can get away with, maybe they can come up with solutions where I don't need terminal, but I feel currently in my software development life, I, I use terminal all the time and I, uh, and not just as a convenience or an inconvenience, but, uh, you know, there's some things I run that require it. Hey folks, it's that time of the year again where I would love to get some input from you, my audience members. Please go to the show notes below and go to the Typeform survey I have set up to get some input from you as far as Empower Apps, the show, and where you think are some of its strong points and where it could use improvements. Please take the time, please share it with others that you know and fill this survey out. We'd really appreciate it. I'm looking for folks to fill this out as soon as they can. It just takes a few moments. Go to the link in the show notes below. And if you have any questions, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. You can DM me or you can send me an email, leo at brightdigit.com. If you have any questions about the survey, thank you so much for doing this. And thank you so much for being an audience member of this show. And thanks again for your support. I think for me, like... When I was doing, I, I would use the iPad Pro pretty much for writing and like businessy stuff. I actually like that the iPad I can't do software development on because then it's like <laughs> a distraction when I need to get other stuff done. But then like a lot of what I write about is going to be about software development. So I want to pull up code and copy it into my blog post or I need to uh, copy an image or something like that. And just like that cross communication on the iPad is really painful compared with like the, how easy it is on the Mac. Like I don't need to pull up a share sheet every time I want to do something. And yeah, we got drag and drop and stuff like that, but it's still like, and so I'm curious to play around with that. And I iPad OS 15, like, and see how much that's improved. I do like the little ellipsis at the top. Like, I think that's going to help a lot of people, but like to me, that's always been the biggest issue technically is like the cross app communication is not as easy of a flow as I find it on the Mac. Right, right. And you have to decide professional work. You have to always have to decide how, how much of a productivity hit am I willing to take to try something new? And maybe, maybe you're willing to go for it, even if, it, if you could be 90% productive. Maybe you say, yeah, the 10% will come later. Or, but I think now for a lot of people, like for myself, it would probably be, even if you had, let's say, we can talk about uh, Swift Playgrounds in a bit, but even if you had full blown Xcode on the iPad, I still feel like today I wouldn't, maybe I could be 50% as productive as I am now. And that's just, so it'd be more of a novelty than anything else. So yeah, let's talk about it. Smooth <laughs> Playgrounds, what do you think? We don't have it in front of our hands right now, so it's a little bit hard to say until you actually try it. I think it's cool. I mean, I I, I was never someone who thought, I can't wait for Xcode on the iPad and I'm going to use yeah, it. Same here. But certainly I'll play around with it. I think it's a, an interesting novelty. I think it could turn into something more. And I'm not against the fact that I might find some use cases where I actually can use it for productive work under certain circumstances. But I was never someone that just thought like a thing people say like, oh, it's not a real computer unless you can develop code on it for it. Don't get me wrong. That's that's totally fine to be able to do that. But I don't consider that a prerequisite for something being a real computer. You know, I think I think it's it's totally fine for software development to be on a different platform and. I don't know, but I, I definitely, I definitely want to play around with it, see, see how it works. Cause it's another good example. You know, you, how do you make pro apps for the iPad? And Apple does provide good examples of 
how to manage that complexity sometimes. Yeah, I think it's like a good, t- it's going to be interesting for me, like besides like being able to build an app on the iPad, I think it'll be an interesting template to see how, if this is the guidance that they follow when, and I think they will eventually move stuff like Final Cut Pro or Logic mm-hmm. or or any of their other applications over to the iPad, because then it's like, okay, now they have a pattern of, okay, there's Xcode to Swift Playground. This is Final Cut Pro on the Mac. This is Final Cut Pro on the iPad. And I think that'll be super, super interesting to see how they follow that, that pattern, that template in the future. And in some ways, maybe it, jump starts the chicken and egg problem the more pro apps that apple makes on the ipad the more people start to use it in those cases therefore the more the more demand for other apps i'm surprised that it was swift playgrounds that's their first like pro app i was thinking that they were going to more release like an audio editor or like Uh, a besides GarageBand, but like a logic pro or a final cut pro besides imovie (laughs) over to the ipad and like i was thinking that was the route that they were going to go i wasn't thinking like swift playgrounds was going to be their first precedent in that in that space so yeah the other thing i thought was cool i found this out yesterday was that like swift packages is kind of the basis for the quote-unquote swift playground projects so they're not actually xcode projects they're swift packages and i'm i'd be really cool to like deep dive into that and see how that works behind the scenes because i'm a big swift package fan okay yeah yeah that's cool that's cool yeah yeah it is it's uh, you know i was hoping that when they announced that they'd say oh you know out later this year but what it sounds sounds like is it is it next year that swift uh, playgrounds it, I, they don't I, even have a beta on the site so who knows there's a lot of stuff xcode cloud included that like isn't out yet <laughs> a, a later week, this a, year a week before next year's wwdc they're gonna yeah release it as soon as we get those macbook pro those apple silicon macbook pro oh. you know, whenever that'll happen yeah <laughs> now we're talking <laughs> Any other thoughts on like the future of iPad OS or iPad development? Nothing specific. I think iPad OS is moving in the right direction. I think people sometimes get frustrated that it Apple doesn't providing all the solutions that everyone wants uh, all in any particular year. I think it makes sense that they're being uh slow and careful and yeah, yeah, we'll see. I mean, I I don't I don't think that they're I think Apple has shown that they they care about this. They're aware of the more professional power user needs and they want to get there, but they also, it's still based on iOS, right? It's still iOS-y and they still, my mother uses her iPad all the time. She is deathly afraid of the Mac. She doesn't understand it, but she loves her iPad. And the only time she needs help with it is when she does things like accidentally put it in split view mode, multitasking mode, which she doesn't care anything about. And so you you still have to make uh you know just i guess casual users uh happy too because it it really fulfills a a good casual computing need for a whole lot of people any favorite talks from this year that you've watched oh it's been a whirlwind uh no i don't have a good answer for that <laughs> i no, i i there's plenty of talks that i uh that i liked but now that i'm i'm trying to like picture the the talk and the person and the and i just i'm i'm kind of drawing a blank any concept i guess the async await stuff that's yeah kind of yeah yeah pretty I, cool I, I like that i mean i'm really looking forward to that i have not been using a lot of swift ui but i have s- 
started to do some new side projects on SwiftUI and they're more focused on the Mac. And I have run into some of the the uh, hard edges that is SwiftUI on the Mac. And it sounds like from the things I've watched that they've made some progress there this year that I'm excited about. And that if nothing else, that Apple has made non-trivial system apps with SwiftUI, which I think yeah, is a, is a huge, awesome. hugely encouraging. So this, uh, so my plan after this, honestly, is yeah. to go through. The, they have a couple of talks with code-alongs on SwiftUI yeah, on yeah. Mac. And I want to go through those today because, yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat where it's like I want to build Mac apps with SwiftUI. And it's it's like you run into – it becomes an uphill battle. I even had a really good design lab. The guy's like, look, I'm not a technical – I'm a design person. But and he was, it was great. It was, those labs are awesome. Yeah, I yeah. highly recommend people take advantage of them. But, yeah, like – I'm hoping that it, they are going to encourage more SwiftUI, and it sounds like they're using it themselves, which is great on the Mac. Yeah, yeah, that's hugely important because there's, I think, it's not even features, but just weird edge cases that you sometimes, sometimes you even think like, how could anyone not have noticed this crazy bug? And uh, <laughs> hopefully, at least those level of obvious issues will be, uh, you know, noticed earlier by Apple internally. Well, thank you so much, Adam, for coming on the show. It was really great to have you on. Well, thank you, Leo, for having me. This was it was a great talk. Thank you. Where can people find you online? On Twitter, I'm at KabukiVision, K-A-B-U-K-I-V-I-S-I-O-N. And uh, that's the main place, I guess. I don't really have a personal website. <laughs> well, thank you so yeah. much. People can find me on Twitter at Leo G. Dion. I'm on, uh, my company is Bright Digit. Please take some time to fill out our 2021 uh, audience survey, if you could. Links in the show notes. And also, uh, if you're watching this on YouTube, please like and subscribe. Or if you're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever we could use a review. If you have any other feedback, feel free to reach out to me on Twitter or email. Thank you so much. And I look forward to talking to you again. Bye.